Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Lizard Wellbeing Show. Now, regular listeners of the show will no doubt know that I have long been a fan of intermittent fasting, the practice of eating just two meals a day, for example. And I'm often asked to share more details about what fasting involves, the benefits of this very simple practice, and who it is and isn't suitable for. Well, that's why I'm so especially pleased to say that we'll be covering this topic today in more detail with the most fervent fan of fasting This is, of course, Dr. Michael Mosley. Well, for those who don't know Michael, he is a science presenter, journalist, producer, and has written countless best-selling books on the topic of fasting, including The Fast Diet, The Clever Guts Diet, Fast Exercise, and Fast Asleep to name just a few. Yeah, there's a bit of a theme, isn't there? Well, he's also the founder of The Fast 800, a step-by-step online guided weight loss program. And we have just had a fascinating conversation, really digging deep into the nitty-gritty science of fasting and its benefits, as well as answering practical questions about how we can best integrate fasting into our daily lives. And this is a practice that genuinely has worked wonders for my health and well being over the years. So I am especially excited to be sharing more info with you all here today. I really do hope that you enjoy this episode. And if you decide to experiment with fasting, do let me know how you get on. You can comment over on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, all the usual suspects over the coming days. I'd love to hear how you're getting on. So without any further ado, let's get right into the show. So very, very warm welcome, Michael. It's a thrill to have you here. We've been talking a lot about intermittent fasting over on Lizard Wellbeing at the moment. Can I ask you, just going back to the beginning, when as a doctor did you first become interested in fasting and health more broadly? 
Well, I think probably I've been interested in health generally for some time, but specifically about fasting and about intermittent fasting was in 2012. And it was triggered by a personal health crisis in the sense that I went to see my GP because I was worried about a skin lesion I had, you know, thought it might be early skin cancer, it turned out to be fine. But she did a blood sample at the time. And then she rang me back to say, you know, your skin is fine, but I'm sorry to say it looks like you have type 2 diabetes. And so repeated the tests. And indeed, I did have type 2 diabetes. And she said, look, it's going to be fine. You can start a medication. And I wasn't keen because my dad had developed diabetes around the same age. I was then in my uh, mid-50s. And so I thought maybe there's something better. And um, I actually persuaded the BBC Horizon Science Series to allow me to make a documentary in which I would uh, look and see if I could effectively cure myself of type 2 diabetes, which was regarded at the time as pretty well impossible. And in the course of making that documentary, which was called Eat Fast, Live Longer, um, I went to the States and I came across some very interesting scientists, including uh, Professor Mark Matson at the Insti National Institutes on Aging, um, who recommended to me I might want to try doing um, intermittent fasting and indeed something which I later came to call 5-2, mm. where I would cut my calories down for a couple of days a week. And that was kind of the genesis of it, uh, really triggered by the fact that I uh, was carrying a bit too much weight around my waist uh, and by the fact that I had type 2 diabetes also quite high blood pressure so not as healthy as I had thought I was. And can I ask you then a personal question what happened to your own health with that experiment? Well it um, enormously improved I was um, telling you about my dad who developed it he kind of went downhill and died really quite early at the age of 74 from complications of diabetes which included early signs of dementia and also heart failure. So he followed medical advice and it didn't do him a great deal of good. Mm. And so what I did is I um, embarked on the 5-2 diet and I lost about nine kilos, which is about 20 pounds in old money. And uh, that was enough to get my blood sugars back to normal, my blood pressure back to normal. Uh, my waist uh, shrank by um, quite a few inches. And I ended that documentary by saying, I think this is could be the beginning of something really big. Uh, that was a prediction I made that went out in um, 2012. Um, actually, uh, we the documentary went out against the uh, during the um, Olympic Games in London, and Usain Bolt was running the 100 meters on the other side. So I thought nobody's going to watch this or care. But they actually uh, kind of took off. So a lot of people did see it, and they started talking about it. They started trying it, and I ended up writing a book called The Fast Diet about six months later uh, with a journalist called Mimi Spencer. Uh, who had um, uh, done very well on it, and also her dad, who was uh, borderline diabetic, had done very well on it. So that was kind of the beginning of it. And then suddenly um, people were talking about intermittent fasting. They were talking about 5-2 diet. In the original book, The Fast Diet, I actually wrote about different forms of intermittent fasting, as well as 5-2, where you carry two days a week. I wrote about alternate-day fasting and also time-restricted eating, which at that time was... Um, largely confined to rats <laughs> and was barely talked about at all, but which has absolutely exploded over the last 10 years. Oh, my goodness. And I have to say, personally, that's what I find the easiest because, correct me if I'm wrong, but the 5-2 is where you eat relatively normally for five days a week and then pretty much fast or very restricted for two days. 
Whereas intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating is a kind of a daily thing where you just eat within a certain window of time. Is that right? Absolutely. And um, the way I describe it sometimes is it's a bit like playing golf. You have different clubs depending uh, what you want to do. And so um, the 5-2 was originally intended primarily as a way of kind of losing weight as well as giving you uh, benefits of intermittent fasting. And at that time, uh, it was certainly better researched than time-restricted eating. Uh, the idea originally was that you cut calories to around 500, 600. Since then, um, I recommend these days a minimum of 800. But that seems to give you similar benefits without being quite as challenging. So, and um, in my latest uh, book, The Fast 800 Keto, I'm actually going for recommending you start on 800 calories every day of a low carbohydrate, low calorie diet, uh, which you do for a few weeks before you transition to intermittent fasting. But you're right, um, certainly for long-term time-restricted eating, people find much easier. Uh, it's based on work largely carried out at the Salk Institute uh, by um, a leading academic there who um, called Professor Sachin Panda, who I know well. And there are lots of different versions of it, but the version he recommends and most of the studies are now based on uh, is called 1410. So I'm sure your listeners are kind of familiar with it, but the idea there is that you extend your overnight fast to 14 hours um, and then you eat within a 10-hour window. So I know what he does is he stops eating about um, 6 o'clock at night and then doesn't eat again until 8 o'clock the next morning. Uh, that's his pattern. Uh, and that's really kind of where the science is focused now. And presumably it doesn't really matter when your window is. I mean, for me, I do tend to be a late supper eater, but I'm quite happy to skip breakfast and not have my first mouthful until perhaps 11 o'clock in the morning, even, even midday. But that allows me to then have a later supper. Is that as beneficial? Absolutely. As, I mean, is there any evidence to show that there's a certain time when we should be eating or fasting? Uh, broadly speaking, it's better if you finish earlier. Right. Uh, it, what they call early uh, time-restricted eating uh, is pretty clearly more beneficial. Uh, the rule that Panda says is really broadly you should aim to finish eating about three hours before you go to bed. Right. So it kind of depends on when you go to bed. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's kind of better to do what you're describing than nothing. But the, the benefit really does seem to come. And that's largely because... It's to do with your chronobiology. And essentially, mm. at nighttime, uh, your body is preparing itself for sleep. Uh, everything is switching off. And so if you cram food in, then it's not going to like it as much. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, to be honest, it's largely about what you can manage in your life as much as anything else. Uh, because a lot of us really, it would be unrealistic to expect us to finish eating at six. I finish eating generally by eight. Right which is my rule. Yeah. And I guess the skeptics listening might say, well, presumably you're just really having two meals a day. So you're having fewer calories. Isn't that what's having the effect here rather than the time lapse? Well, a lot of people still fit in three meals. I mean, if you're stopping <laughs> eating at eight and not starting eating again until 10 the next morning, still plenty of time yeah. to fit in three meals. <laughs> um, so clearly some of the benefit comes uh, from the fact that people do tend to cut their calories as well. But there is evidence of benefits which go beyond that. Um, we know, for example, that, um, you know, your gut takes a terrific pounding uh, during the uh, day as you're pouring food down it. And re essential repair only really takes place when you're not eating. 
So um, Professor Panda described it to me a bit like a motorway. You can't mend the motorway while having the traffic go down it, which is why you've got to kind of close it off at night. And the same is broadly true um, of your gut, that it appreciates time off from digestion. And that seems to be one of the benefits. There's kind of a lot of research, still early days, um, human studies, but um, there is evidence that it improves your insulin sensitivity, that improves blood pressure. There are quite a lot of trials going on. There's one at the moment going on in the US, for example, looking at fire officers and police officers, because we know that they do a lot of shift work. And more people who are fire officers, police officers, die from heart disease than they do from violent crime or being burnt in fires or things like that. So uh, there are some big trials going on in there and in Australia looking at, uh, you know, if you randomly allocate people to uh, this pattern, does it help? And uh, the answer is the early data suggests, yes, it does. I'm really interested to hear you as a doctor talk about low carb and use that word keto. That's something that I've been following for a while and, and I'm a fan. I'm not actually in ketosis, but I definitely cut my sugars and try to be very low carb. What's your view on that? I mean, it, it, are you now turning against carbs generally? How, how far do we have to go? Do we need to be in a state of ketosis and just be eating our fats and, and eschewing all carbs of, of, of any kind? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I was always very sceptical about it. Uh, and then I, um, you know, in recent years, there's been a lot of really, really interesting studies, certainly in terms of type 2 diabetes. Uh, there is some decent evidence now of the benefits of going lower carb for bringing your blood sugars under control. And um, there's a big trial going on in the States at the moment, um, showing that even people on um, insulin uh, seem to benefit from going on a keto diet and uh, can come off the medication. Uh, I think my latest book is called The Fast Day Under Keto, and therefore it is keto. Uh, but uh, I'm really, in that book, recommending short term, because we know the advantages of keto diet in the short term. They include suppression of appetite, preservation of muscle mass as you lose weight. Uh, and uh, if you do it in a calorie-restricted way, which is what I'm recommending, you don't have to eat huge amounts of fat. Um, however, uh, I'm not convinced that for most people uh, are able to stick to it long term or would benefit from sticking it to long term. If you have epilepsy uh, and you benefit from being on a keto diet, then yes. If you have type 2 diabetes and you benefit from being on a keto diet, yes, I can see you could stick to it. I think most people, um, the best, if you like, regarded diet on the planet is the Mediterranean diet. And that one has plenty of oily fish and nuts and olive oil and yogurt. But it also has some carbs in the forms of legumes and kidney beans and lentils and some brown rice and stuff like that. Um, and so what I'm recommending is that you transition towards that. I was talking earlier about, you know, being like a good, you know, like playing with golf clubs. You have different clubs for different things. If you want to lose weight fast uh, and you want to do it effectively and safely, then a keto diet seems to be a really good way of doing it. Uh, but the long-term outcomes are less clear. And as I said, um, most people struggle uh, to maintain it. And certainly the very long-term studies I've looked at have shown uh, that the Mediterranean diet uh, leads to longer-term weight loss and more benefit than uh, keto or low-fat. That uh, most people are just unable to stick to it because it's 
a genuine keto diet where you are in ketosis is really tough. It really does mean keeping your carbs really, really low. Low carb is easier to do, and that if by low carb all you're doing really is essentially um, minimizing particularly processed carbs. But I think there are lots of benefits to be had from eating, you know, veg and legumes and things like that. So uh, I think it's it's difficult to maintain long term. We are experiencing such an epidemic of type 2 diabetes and it's such an enormous drain, particularly on the NHS. And yet when I look at the NHS dietary guidelines and talk to state registered dietitians, there is some resistance to this. That people are still advocating eating carbs as part of recommendations for, for type 2 diabetes. How long do you think it will take for this to change or do you think it ever will change? I think it's very slowly changing. A couple of years ago, I was um, in the hospital visiting um, a friend and I happened to be in the person next bed with somebody who had type 2 diabetes and he was there to have his leg amputated because he had, you know, because if you have type 2 diabetes, you're 17 times the risk. And um, for breakfast, they basically offered him, you know, cornflakes or white bread. Oh, that my was goodness. Kind of what was on the menu. <laughs> uh, That's so appalling. It kind of, <laughs> It is appalling, but that's what you get. And um, the advice is still very much, I mean, they do do a token, you know, well, have brown bread, but it's very much, you know, load up the starchy stuff. And that really doesn't make sense on so many levels because, you know, your primary problem if you have type 2 diabetes is that you are consuming too much in the way of starch, which converts to glucose. So why on earth would you want to keep on topping it up? But I do sense a movement away and within really the last year or so there's been an acceptance by a number of sort of bodies in the US and the UK and Australia that low carb diet is a very you know is a suitable diet for people with type 2 diabetes and there's also increasing acceptance that type 2 diabetes uh, can be put into remission or reverse depending on how you like to put it by uh, going on a low calorie low carb diet of the sort that I describe and the sort I kind of put myself onto. There have been so many big trials recently demonstrating the benefits of rapid weight loss um, for particularly for people with type 2 diabetes, but anybody who's kind of needs to shift significant amounts of weight, that the UK government is now rolling it out in 5,000 people. So we've moved from a situation where this stuff was regarded as really sort of wacky uh, to more mainstream, but it takes an awful lot of time to change medical opinion. And so I think all we can do is keep on saying it and um, eventually, eventually things will change. Yeah. Well, of course, we're fighting big vested interest, aren't we? Because the food industry relies on us buying high carb, highly processed foods. And I remember when I experimented with keto and I did feel very well on it, I was struck by how nothing I bought came out of a packet. I mean, literally nothing. So I was of zero financial interest to the food industry because everything I was eating was just fresh. Absolutely. And in uh, in in my new book, that's what I write a lot about, uh, about the rise and rise of ultra processed foods. And these are foods um, which you know very well. They are basically manufactured. Uh, they have huge numbers of E numbers and strange numbers of things on the side of the packet. And they are hugely popular. They, along with junk food, um, are being consumed in ever greater amounts. In the UK, at least half the average British diet consists of ultra-processed food. And uh, what has been fascinating is 
there's something about the processing itself which alters the nature of the food. So it's not just the fact that it's really, you know, high in fat, salt and sugar, but also because of the sort of fats, the sort of carbs they put in and the way it is manufactured that seems to make it so alien to us and also so addictive. Because these foods um, are created by a small handful of multinationals who own zillions of sub companies, you know, and you are unaware of how much of their product you are eating. But yeah, in, in the book, I go into that in some depth. And one of the things uh, is that this really has been the major driver of obesity around the world over the last 20 years. It's the production and consumption of ultra processed food by big food. It is very, very like uh, big tobacco. That what's happened is we have been seduced into eating this stuff. It has been, you know, engineered to be highly addictive. So you will go on eating more and more of it. Uh, and unless governments do something about it, it's very difficult to see how these trends will be reversed. And it's not just, obviously, we've seen particularly the rise and rise of ultra-processed vegan food and vegetarian food. So this is a big new market for the manufacturers. And because a lot of, you know, people are taking up veganism for ethical reasons they also they don't cook so what they do is they buy vegan sausage rolls or they buy vegan ultra processed foods and this is really no better for you than you know the other stuff uh, it just uh, you know it, it's essentially ultra processed food with good pr and uh, it's ultra profitable but not ultra healthy yes Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-N. L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. I was looking at some research uh, on gut microbiome and uh, various microbiota. That's one of my passions. And in particular, looking at these little things, the, the firmicutes, which seem to thrive on sugars. 
and they they seem to be the kind of the bad guys in this equation and they give us sugar cravings so that we're actually more likely to reach for you know biscuits and sugary snacks and and ultra processed foods as you say so would it be true to say then that if we can kind of dampen down these firmicutes by increasing microbiome diversity that we're actually going to give ourselves a better chance of being able to resist the ultra high processed foods and the cravings that come with them absolutely i mean i think the sort of addictive nature of these foods is predicated on all sorts of things they are doing to your brain and your body and to your gut microbiome, as you say, because the more of these foods you eat, uh, the more you encourage uh, the proliferation of the microbes that like this stuff. And the way the microbes communicate with your brain is by producing chemical substances, uh, many of which mimic neurotransmitters. And so they travel in the brain, uh, to the brain by the bloodstream, but they also hack the vagus nerve, rather like sort of Russian hackers. They get in there and they can alter your cravings and the way you think which is uh, a bizarre but um, real thing. So yes, the more you eat of these things, the more that happens. There are also direct effects on the brain uh, because a friend of mine, uh, Chris, Dr. Chris Van Tullican last year, he did an experiment, I did an experiment about the same time, but uh, where we put ourselves deliberately on an ultra-processed food diet. And I kind of write about that in the book as well. And in Chris's case, uh, he put on something like, I think four or five kilos, uh, but he had brain scans and he actually saw changes in his brain, Gosh. Uh, which were caused by going on the processed food. And a year later, he had himself scanned again and they were still there. <gasps> the changes that had been really? created were still there. Oh. Now, when I did it, um, I put on about three kilos because I didn't do it quite as um, for quite as long as Chris. But my blood pressure shot up, my uh, blood sugar shot up. Um, so I was back borderline type 2 diabetic. And that was done in less than two weeks. Less than two weeks. <laughs> that is really shocking. I mean, my goodness. So if that's the case that you can make it bad in two weeks, does the same go that you can actually improve in such a short space of time? Yeah, but the evidence is that uh, the best time to lose the weight is soon after you put it on. You'll find it much easier before your body and your microbiome and all the, your brain has kind of gone, okay, that's the way that I'm going to be. Um, so, yeah, I lost it all in 10 days um, by putting myself on the fast 800 keto. I basically uh, 800 to 900 calories, uh, less than 50 grams of carbs, a, slightly more than 50 grams of protein a day. And, uh, yeah, that was um, – and I was back to normal within – it was less than 10 days. Um, so that was the good news. But my wife was less than thrilled, I have to say, when I told her I was going to do this. I was doing it for an Australian TV series uh, called Australian Health Revolution. And as part of that, we were also, uh, the idea of it was I'm going to take eight Australians with prediabetes or diabetes and basically try and cure them uh, in eight weeks. Uh, and um, as part of that, I thought I ought to put myself in a similar state and then join them. So that's what we did. It was really, really moving and interesting and fascinating. And we also, um, Diabetes Australia changed their position statement as a result of this. And one of the other things that we did is we went off to the Australian Parliament and tested a whole bunch of Australian politicians and discovered loads of them had um, hypertension, fatty livers, uh, and were either pre-diabetic or diabetic and had no idea. So that was very entertaining. Uh, though whether uh, we were essentially, I was trying to persuade them to initiate legislation to uh, curb 
some of the food giants. I don't know if we succeeded, but it was certainly uh, entertaining. To yeah, me. good luck with that one. And how did you find those eight volunteers on the series? How did they do? Uh, they did very well. Um, and that was great. Some of them were already on insulin uh, and some of them were in pre-diabetic state uh, and they had ups and downs. But uh, yeah, they did well. And uh, I've known now a lot of people who've done the fast 800 keto and average weight loss, one to two kilos a week, sometimes more. Uh, and a lot of people with pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes have managed to uh, reverse it. So the only thing I'd say, obviously, is if you are you know, diabetic, and if you are on medication, then you need to talk to your doctor before embarking on anything like this. Uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you should um, discuss with them because your blood sugars and your blood pressure will both come down pretty fast and you're in danger of being over-medicated. In fact, one of the contributors on the series, uh, his GP did not bring his blood pressure, so he started to feel a bit faint, and it was largely because he was over-medicated. Once they actually removed his blood pressure medication, which he no longer needed, he was absolutely fine. But uh, you kind of need to be a bit careful if you're sure. on medication. Sure. That's amazing, isn't it? Be, be careful because it is going to be so effective. <laughs> it's going to be so effective, exactly. And it's going to change so fast. And uh, I think, it's, as I said, it's very, very rewarding uh, when you see patients, when you see patients, when you see people, uh, who have been told essentially they have an incurable disease mm. to actually do something about it. And um, this has been a, a huge revolution, led mainly, I have to say, by one of my scientific heroes, Professor Roy Taylor up in Newcastle, mm -hmm. Mike Lean in Glasgow, and others in Oxford. But it genuinely is changing the conversation. And it is offering hope to millions and millions of people who previously were just told, you know, take medication, get on with it. And we know the outcomes are poor, very poor, even if you're on medication. Mm. Now, a lot of my community are midlife and beyond, especially midlife women, who often complain that, that fat around the middle, belly fat, is particularly stubborn to lose. Is there any medical reason for that? Or is it just the question that we're middle-aged spread and that we're just getting wider as we age? No, sadly, it's largely hormonal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, because women go through the menopause before the menopause women typically put on weight around the bottom and thighs and the breasts and the upper area upper arms uh, and that is kind of not unhealthy the unhealthy fat is the stuff around the waist and men tend to put it on there so the average man typically underestimates their waist size by about six inches because um, you need to measure yourself around the belly button uh, and you've got blokes going, oh, I'm 32 inches. And that's because that's the trouser size. And the trouser size all lie anyway, because the manufacturers, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I buy 33 inches and they're just hanging off. You know? uh. Uh, but uh, you need to measure yourself around the waist. Uh, but what happens with women is hormonal changes occur basically around the menopause. And that means the deposition of fat changes. It goes from the other areas and it starts to pile on the waist. And I have to say, there is also a, a, another group of women who are unfairly demonized, who put on a lot of weight, particularly around the bottom and the legs, but who are actually suffering from something called lipidemia. I don't know if you're mm. aware of that, yes. but that is, it affects, you know, five to 10% of women, and they can be very skinny on top, and it just, it, it, it is a really difficult condition. And that is one that really only responds to liposuction. There is nothing else that works. But that is obviously... For that group, but for middle-aged women 
who are putting on round the waist, uh, you can pretty much blame the hormones. Yeah, yeah. So do you think then, I mean, particularly with things like HRT and, and with, you know, good diet and exercise, is it possible to, to avoid this and, and to not get this dreaded muffin top and this increased waist size, which we know is so indicative of poorer health outcomes? It's certainly possible. It's difficult. Uh, my wife, uh, who does all the recipes for the books and who's a GP yes. and um, who I've known now for 40 years at medical school, is exactly the same size pretty much as she was then. And despite four kids and uh, the menopause, never change. Yeah. She is on HRT, yeah. but she just happens to be one of those really small number of people who, uh, for whatever reasons, and genetics does play a considerable role in it, yep. but she just... She hasn't got a sweet tooth. She likes healthy food. Mm. She loves food. She cooks. She eats, you know, but she doesn't put on weight. Yeah. And she just self-regulates in a way that I'm incapable of. If I just <laughs> did what I wanted to do, I'd balloon. Yeah. I'd turn into my dad very rapidly. <laughs> um, so it can be done, but it is difficult to do. And Claire would, is certainly an advocate of HRT and the right people. And yeah. what she says is you've got to look around, you've got to find the right thing. Mm -hmm. uh, she uses a topical version. Yep. And again, you know, the bad old days uh, and a lot of the data about the fears of, you know, cancer and things like that were based on uh, taking pills. Absolutely. Topical is better. Yep. Uh, certainly if you suffer severely from symptoms of the menopause, then yes, you should really explore it. Mm. And that will help yeah. without a doubt yeah. uh, with um, the muffin top. Uh, but beyond that, uh, if you already have one, uh, then um, you might want to do something like the fasting under keto or something yes. else, which is going to shift the weight fast and then switch to the mid-cell diet. And, uh, you know, you are effectively in the same position as blokes are to some degree. Blokes have a tendency that they pile on the waist. Um, you know, when I put it on, I put it around my waist and I put it around my neck. Gosh. And then I start to snore. So Claire always knows when I put on the weight. But she says, uh, you're bloody snoring again. You know, do something about it. So, yeah. And I, I just hit a critical point and I snore really loudly. And then I can just lose half a centimeter around the neck and bang. I'm all is peaceful in the Mosley household. That that's that's great, and I, I think it's it's interesting to discuss as we age, you know, how we age well, because there has been some pushback on social media, you know, with people saying it's unrealistic to expect women, particularly, to maintain the figure that they had when they were younger. But presumably, we can get close to that with the right kinds of of diet and exercise. Do you think? Absolutely, and for me, it's not about the figure either. Uh, broadly, it's about your health, and um, one of the tragic things is that women live longer than men, in the, certainly in the UK, but will spend longer in ill health. So, uh, you know, life expectancy for a woman in the UK at birth, something like 84. Uh, but by the age of 60, uh, many are on at least one medication and already facing some life-limiting disease. So they spend, on average, a woman will spend 24 years in ill health, oh. uh, which is not great. No. Um, so you can do something about it. 30s, 40s, 50s, you can do something about it. And um, things you need to keep an eye on are the waist size, but you need to look at things like uh, your blood pressure, your blood sugars, all of these things you can test. And, uh, you know, something like a third to a half of adults in the UK over the age of 40 have what's called metabolic disease. That means they have a combination of a large waist, high blood pressure, high blood sugars and high blood fats. And these are things which are going to come back and bite you because they lead to, uh, you know, all the diseases of aging. Aging, you know, 
it is inevitable, but the rate at which you age and how well you age is not. And you can, you know, you can at any point in life. I mean, clearly becoming more active is good, but frequently if you are significantly overweight, you have to lose the weight before you become more active just because you don't want to do it. And um, sadly as well, exercise is a terrible way of losing weight. It's a great way of doing all sorts of other things. Great for mood, great for, you know, uh, things like sleep. Uh, but very ineffective for losing weight. Uh, the only real way to lose weight is to cut calories. And um, if you combine that with keto, then you can cut calories without feeling hungry, which I think is critical. But um, yeah, I mean, the reason I do what I do is because I don't want to terminate my dad. I don't want to die of heart failure and be demented at the age of 74. I want to see my, you know, if I ever have them, I want to see my grandkids grow up, you know. Is it ever too late then? So for older listeners who may be thinking, you've just described me exactly, is, is there any stage where you think I'm actually beyond hope? Not at all. Um, I think you can at any age. Uh, the only thing I'd say is, obviously, if you're 70 plus, uh, then you're probably not going to want to go, uh, you know, you don't need to get down to the same shape you were when you were 18. That's unrealistic. It's not going to happen. And it's probably unhealthy. The one bit of good news as you get older is that after the age of broadly 65, uh, the healthiest kind of weight to be, it seems to be slightly overweight, oddly. It's in that sort of BMI of 23 to 28. Um, so the BMI creeps up a little bit. So uh, broadly speaking, we're advised to have a BMI lower than 25 and more like 23. But when you're over 65, you can certainly get away with being a bit heavier. Uh, but uh, you don't, at any age, ideally, your waist um, should be less than half your height. That's another, I call it the string test. Uh, get a piece of string, uh, measure it to your height, fold it in half. Will it go around your tummy? If it doesn't, uh, you could probably benefit from losing a little bit uh, of that stuff. But no, absolutely. And never too late, but obviously it's kind of like giving up smoking. The sooner you can do it, the better. Yeah. And before you go, can I ask you a little bit about the impact on brain and brain health? Because clearly dementia, mm. Alzheimer's, very much Absolutely. front of mind. What What is the effect on of low-carb eating and of fasting? Are there any studies showing that it benefits the brain? Sure. So the things which lead to dementia are typically poor blood flow to the brain plus an element of genetics. Smoking is absolutely lethal for the brain. So if you're a smoker, stop now because nothing else is going to be as effective as stopping smoking. Beyond that, um, yes, intermittent fasting has been shown. Again, my one of my heroes, Professor Mark Matson at the National Institutes on Aging, he showed that doing a sort of 5-2 type diet, intermittent fasting, uh, led to the production in the brain of a brain hormone called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And what that does is it helps to preserve your brain cells. Um, he showed me some of his mice that have been genetically engineered to develop dementia. And those he put on the 5-2 diet, uh, they basically um, it cut the risk they would develop dementia by about a quarter, about 25%. And um, they lived to a ripe old mouse age without developing it, whereas those he put on a junk food diet uh, basically started to develop signs of dementia in the, the mouse equivalent of um, early 50s. So this was pretty brutal, but we know that the keto diet also seems to have those benefits. That if you go into ketosis, that also leads to production of BDNF. And BDNF, again, uh, as I said, is good for the brain. And that seems to be why for 100 years they've been treating epileptics uh, with a keto diet. 
uh, because of the benefits for the brain, for brain stabilization and things like that. Your brain seems to like uh, feeding itself on ketones. So um, either thing is good, but again, from the big data, it's the Mediterranean diet that always comes out on top. That uh, the people, people who stick to that, it not only cuts your risk of dementia and cognitive decline, but also improves your mood. A lot of studies, particularly some big ones done in Australia recently, have shown that switching from a typical Australian diet uh, to a Mediterranean-style diet uh, significantly improves things like anxiety and depression. One study, they actually took people who were profoundly depressed on medication, and a third of them, within six weeks, were able to come off all the medication simply by changing their diet. Wow. That is a very, very positive note to end on. So upshot, look more at the Mediterranean diet foods and consider time-restricted eating. If you're not into the 5-2, you could actually just alter your eating times. And all this legion of benefits that you've so amazingly covered from fat loss to disease prevention to mental health, cognitive function can all be improved. Is that basically the bottom line? Absolutely. And I also have a website called thefast800.com where you can find a lot more information and also find out whether this is a suitable thing for you or not. I mean, something like 40,000 people have done our online course and average weight loss. Um, it was audited by the NHS recently, was just over eight kilos at a year. It's amazing. Sustained I weight loss. I have looked at it. It's an excellent program and I look forward to talking to you more about it. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Fascinating as always. Pleasure. Well, big thanks to Michael. And that is it for today's episode. As always, you will find all the links and the resources that we mentioned over on lizalwellbeing.com. There you can sign up for the free weekly newsletter filled with healthy, low-carb recipes and all the latest developments from the world of well-being. Very many thanks again to all who have left us such lovely reviews, especially on iTunes. It really does help us source the most top-notch guests for you all as well as helping others find the show so until the next time go well bye-bye the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me Liz Earle with production by Amaryllis Earle and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue with thanks to my producer Ellie Smith and guest booker Millie de la Morinière. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off.